I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare Shai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we extrapolate the text of scripture into applicable lessons for life. But we are nearing the end of the book of Numbers, this document of human treachery and God's faithfulness. This book reveals the treachery that lies in our hearts lurking to strike when the circumstances don't satisfy our flesh. But this book is more than that. It's also a map of change. From a nation that was still slaves to Egypt, even though they'd been freed from their chains. A nation that sought to continue the practices and the methods of Egypt and take them with them wherever they went. To a nation sold out to Hashem and his ways. His methods that were countercultural and odd. And in the end, Israel conformed. In the beginning of the wilderness experience, Israel was redeemed. They were brought out of Egypt, and they left with great power and authority. They had honor for the first time in centuries as they were given goods and were looked on with fear by their neighbors. Israel had cried out to Hashem for their freedom, and He had answered them. And the stories that follow demonstrate just how unprepared Israel was for the freedom that they were given. Because all too often as humans, we think that freedom and redemption mean that all of our problems are solved. When in reality, redemption and being granted freedom from sin and death is just the beginning of a long process. A process that involves many moments of loss, deprivation, testing, and trials. A process that weakens the hold of the flesh on our lives. And along the way come many failures. And in the beginning, this may look like all there is. Failure upon failure as your flesh succumbs to the ways of Egypt that are inherently part of your existence. You were raised there. You were part of something there. You knew there. Here, things are dry and scary and dangerous. And here, the process of death will begin. A long and drawn-out process that will result in the person that you were being put to death and a new person who wears your face being raised up in your place. And as you proceed further and further from Egypt, you will notice that given enough time, you will begin to see victories mixed in with the failures. Victories over things that once held you tightly. The things that used to define you will become ways of the past and your definition will no longer be found in what you do, but rather in whose you are. Patience will reign in your members because you have been led through the dry land by the one who is patient. You have been fed by his hand and you have been sustained by his power and his strength. Humility will reign in your members because you have lived through your own failures. You have experienced the pain of the death of who you were, and you face down and you know that darkness that dwells in your heart.
and you will no longer trust in your own ability to take you forward. You have experienced just how helpless you are in the face of overwhelming odds. You have lost and failed when you relied on yourself. But you know the one who is all-powerful. You not just know of him, but know him on a deep-down and intimate level. And you know that he fights for you. Even when you don't see him at work, you know that he is working. And as we examine the book of Numbers in this way, we recognize that this is not just the story of an ancient people who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. This book is our story, the story of all who believe. And yet there's more to do than simply being changed by the wilderness journey. There is a land, a kingdom that is still out there for the taking. We simply have to continue to move forward and take up our weapons. And our greatest weapon is our faith. And that faith is built on moments. The moments of the past where we saw our own failures, but more importantly, the moments where we saw God move on our behalf. Our greatest weapon is our testimony. The stories of our lives that recount the greatness of God despite ourselves. And with our testimonies, we can overcome We can wage war. We can stand before an enemy that scoffs at us in our weakness. And we can overcome. Because we know that Hashem has already won the battle for us. And that is what this chapter in the book of Numbers forces us to contemplate. A recounting of the journeys of the past as a reminder that then acts as a launch pad into the future. So let's read this chapter and then let's discuss even more what this chapter holds for us. Numbers chapter 33. These are the departures of the children of Israel, who went out of the land of Mitzrayim by their divisions under the hand of Moshe and Aaron. And Moshe wrote down the starting points of their departures at the mouth of Hashem, and these are the departures according to their starting points. So they departed from Ramses in the first new moon, on the fifteenth day of the first new moon, on the morrow of the Pesach. The children of Israel went out with boldness before the eyes of all the Mitzrites. And the Mitzrites were burying all their firstborn whom Hashem had stricken among them. Also on their mighty ones Hashem had executed judgments. And the children of Israel departed from Ramses and camped at Sukkot. And they departed from Sukkot and camped at Atam, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they departed from Atam and turned back to Pihacherot, which is east of Baal and they camped near Migdal. And they departed from before Hacherot and passed over through the midst of the sea into the wilderness, went three days' journey in the wilderness of Atam and camped at Marah. And they departed from Marah and came to Elim, and at Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there. And they departed from Elim and camped by the Sea of Reeds. And they departed from the Sea of Reeds and camped by the wilderness of Sin. And they departed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovka. And they departed from Dovka and camped at Alush. And they departed from Alush and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. And they departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they departed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kivrot Chatava. And they departed from Kivrot Chatava and camped at Chatzarot. And they departed from Chatzarot and camped at Ritma, and they departed from Ritma and camped at Ramon Peretz, and they departed from Ramon Peretz and camped at Livna, and they departed from Livna and camped at Risa, and they departed from Risa and camped at Kehelata, and they departed from Kehelata and camped at Mount Shafer, 
and they departed from Mount Shafer and camped at Charada, and they departed from Charada and camped at Makelot, and they departed from Makelot and camped at Tachat, and they departed from Tachat and camped at Terach, and they departed from Terach and camped at Mitka, and they departed from Mitka and camped at Chasmona, and they departed from Chasmona and they camped at Moserot, and they departed from Moserot and camped at Benei Yakaan, and they departed from Benei Yakaan and camped at Chor Chagidgad. And they departed from Chor Chagidgad, and they camped at Yotvata. And they departed from Yotvata, and camped at Avrona. And they departed from Avrona, and camped at Etzion Gever. And they departed from Etzion Gever, and camped in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. And they departed from Kadesh, and camped at Mount Hor, on the boundary of the land of Edom. There Aharon the priest went up to Mount Hor at the mouth of Hashem, and died there in the fortieth year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Mitzrayim on the first day of the fifth new moon. Now Aaron was one hundred and twenty-three years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the king of Arad the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south of the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. So they departed from Mount Hor, and camped at Salmonah, and they departed from Salmonah and camped at Punan, and they departed from Punan and camped at Ovot, and they departed from Ovot and camped at Ieh-Avarim, on the border of Moab, and they departed from Iim and camped at Devon-Gad, and they departed from Devon-Gad and camped at almon Divlateama, and they departed from almon Divlateama and camped at the mountains of Avarim before Nevo, and they departed from the mountains of Avarim and camped in the desert plain of Moab by the Yarden of Jericho. And they camped by the Yarden from Beth Yeshimosh as far as Evel Shittim in the desert plains of Moab. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the desert plains of Moab by the Yarden of Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have passed over the Yarden into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and shall destroy all their engraved stones, and shall destroy all their molded images, and lay waste to all their high places. And you shall possess the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among the clans. To the larger you give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you give smaller inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, that is his. You inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. And if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And it shall be that I do to you as I thought to do to them. This chapter is one of those chapters that it is so easy to just skip right over. Just as with many of the chapters on genealogies that talk of people we will never meet or hear anything more about, this chapter simply recounts a series of place names that we have not encountered before and will not encounter again. And many of these places that we read of in this chapter, absolutely nothing happened. The people arrived, they made camp, they packed up, and they left. Nothing of significance, nothing of import, life simply being lived out. And the fact is that this is what the majority of our lives feature. Nothing of import. Simply life lived in a time of strife or a time of peace. Holding it together and being successful for the most part. But the rest? The rest of these places are where things changed. Significant failures and significant victories. It's in these places where God moved and made himself known beyond his day-to-day presence. So let's examine this list and see what we can discover of this process of change that might help us to navigate our own wilderness journeys. 
As we read through this list, we should notice a few things. First off, we find only two dates recounted in this entire list. The first is the date of the initial departure, the fifteenth day of the first month in the first year of their travels. And then in verse 38 we read that in the fortieth year, on the first of the fifth month, is when Aaron died on Mount Hor. This means that all of the events from chapter 22 until the end of Deuteronomy all happened in the course of less than six months. The capture of some Israelites, the resulting battle for their release, the events with the bronze serpent, the defeats of Og and Sihon, the arrival at the east side of the Jordan, the events with Balaam and Balak, the matter at Baal Peor, the war with Moab using only 12,000 troops, and the tribes of Reuben, Gab, and half of Manasseh constructing the fortifications for their families and animals to live in while they were away on the conquest, the second census, and all of the book of Deuteronomy. All of this taking place before the conquest began in the first month of the 41st year. And if we think back to the events between Ramses and Sinai, we estimated that it was a total of 50 days between the Sea of Reeds and the giving of the Torah on Sinai. So let's do a little math, as it's from this chapter that we get the idea of just how the wilderness journey progressed. From Ramses to Sinai, it was only 12 stops, and that took 50 days or so. And then Israel rested for a time in one place as the covenant was cut and the expectations of the people of God were revealed to the people. And over the course of the next year, the people remained in one place. It was the 50th day of the second year before Israel moved again. Just under a year for the last 20 chapters of Exodus, Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Number to occur. And in this time, they had the issue with the golden calf, Moses on the mountaintop for a total of 80 days, the building of the tabernacle, the initiation and dedication of tabernacle worship, the institution of the priesthood, the first census, and more. And between these two periods of intense movement and action that takes up less than two years of the 40 in the wilderness is the central part of the journey, from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, the stories that we read of in the book of Numbers between chapters 11 and 13. It took 21 stops to make this journey from Sinai to Kadesh, and it was at Kadesh that Israel sent out their tours to go out and to examine the land. And here we're not given a time frame of when this happened. We're not exactly sure how long these 21 stops took to cover, but it did not take an entire 38 years to make this trip. How do we know? Because it was at Kadesh that the judgment against the first generation occurred. It was here on this 33rd stop in the overall journey that Israel stayed until the first generation passed away. And the very next stop occurred in the 40th year. People often ask how we're able to determine that Israel spent 38 years in one place as the previous generation passed away. Well, it's from this chapter where we find the foundation of that thought. Because we know the timing of the other events of the wilderness. We know when Israel left Sinai. We know when Aaron died. The time between took 37 years and some months. And so as we consider the wilderness journey from this perspective, we find that this journey contained times of intense growth and movement, separated by times of sheer boredom and perhaps stagnation. The flow of life, if we consider it. Simply look at how a human grows. At first, there is intense growth for the first few years, and then comes a time of slowdown, as the growth of the human body doesn't have much movement. 
But then puberty hits, and in just a few years, another spurt of intense growth occurs, and then a drastic slowdown of growth, over and over again. And all life works in this way. Creatures, plants, cells, nothing grows at a constant rate. There are always, in every case, periods of intense growth, followed by a slowdown of growth, bordering on stagnation. And it's this way in the spiritual as well. And this list, it demonstrates that perfectly. Now, there is contained in this chapter another topic that is of importance, and this chapter gives us the perfect opportunity to discuss it. And I figure, why not? This is the book of Numbers, after all, and so let's discuss this topic before we leave the book of Numbers. And that topic is the usage of numbers in the Bible. You see, it has been recognized by many that the Bible uses numbers in order to demonstrate ideas. Numbers become another symbol, and the symbol imparts ideas beyond the realm of mathematics. And so we see certain numbers brought up over and over in the Bible, and when we see these numbers, we can understand that something is happening beneath the surface that's not necessarily explicit. But when we do this, it's important that we don't impose modern ideals on this ancient form of communication. It's all too easy to impose our own ideas on the text in this way as in it is in any other. We have to let the text speak for itself and attempt to arrive at the understanding that the ancient authors intended. We've seen it before with the number seven. Often the number seven is said to rep represent divine perfection. But when we examine the usages of the number seven throughout scripture, we discover that this may not be all of the story. Seven is directly connected to Hashem. It's a number that, when we see it, should cause us to think of Him. Seven spirits of Hashem, seven branches of the menorah, and so on. But when we see seven connected to a date, more often than not, the date is associated with Hashem. The seventh day Sabbath, the fourteenth day Passover and Sukkot, the seven days of Matzah and Sukkot, the seven weeks leading up to Shavuot, the first day of the seventh month, the seventh year of Shemitah, and so on. And when we see seven connected to the passing of time, we discover that there is a process of change occurring. Usually this is an elevation from a lower state of being to a higher state. And we see this in the seven days of cleansing for uncleanness, the seven days of ordination for priests, even the seven days of creation or the seven days of marching around the city of Jericho, and many more. And in this we discover that how the number is used is just as important as what the number is. A while back we looked at how the number 8 signifies new creation or fresh start. The number 12 reflects Israel's government. The number 40 reflects trial and testing and even growth. The number 3, when connected to days, reveals a time of decision or a reversal of a previous action or waiting for a thing to occur. It's a time of stillness while matters are worked out outside of your own power. Now, I'm not going to go through every number. There are plenty of resources out there to get you started, but I will caution you. Don't simply settle on what those other resources say. If this is important to you, take the time, meditate on the various occurrences of these numbers in the Bible, and you may find that what many others have to say about a number is not quite as accurate as it might seem on the surface. So the question then arises to which I have no answer. 
Do these numbers have significance because they are actually meaningful in our universe? Or are these numbers used in the Bible because they meant something to the ancient audience that the Bible was written to? Frankly, I'm not sure that anyone has an answer to this. And so recognize that whatever slant you choose to put on this, it is a matter of faith. So why is this idea so important in this chapter? This chapter does not seem to have any specific numbers associated with it. That is, until you count up all of the stops that are listed. From Ramses to Shatim is a total of 42 stops. 42. The answer to life, the universe, and everything. Now, if only we knew the question. All kidding aside, 42 is one of the least mentioned numbers in the Bible, and in most cases, the occurrence of the number is not explicit. It's it's obscured in the text in some way. And in this, we get a prime example of how the way that a number is used bears meaning on what it is meant to get us thinking of. Because we're going to find 42 connected to several other numbers in order to express connected ideas but with a different slant each time we see it. And so our challenge is to discern these occurrences and then determine what meaning connects them. So if we do a search for the number 42 in the Bible, we do run across it several times. In fact, the very next time we see this number is in just two chapters. In Numbers 35, we read of the 48 Levitical cities spread throughout Israel, 42 of them not being cities of refuge. Numbers 35, verse 6. And the cities which you give to the Levites are the six cities of refuge which you give to the manslayer to flee. And to these you add 42 cities. And if we consider this, we can think of all the things that Levitical cities and cities of refuge represent and then hold them loosely as we examine other occurrences in the text. The next time that we find this number is in 2 Kings chapter 2, when 42 bears attack the youths that were making fun of Elisha. 2 Kings 2, 23-24, And he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the way, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, bald head, go up, bald head. And he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of Hashem. And two female bears came out of the forest and tore to pieces 42 of the youths. Now, this story, when you examine the language used, the word that's translated as youth is also one that is used in several places for young men of the royal house uh, who aren't specifically children. And so it's highly likely that this doesn't mean a mob of children, but rather young men who were part of the royal house of Israel. And their taunt was not simply one of name-calling. It was mocking enticement, likely by use of the royal house to make Aliyah to Bethel, to go up to the false temple of Hashem and its golden calves that had been placed there long before. This wasn't just some random bear attack on little kids who were mean. This was judgment on the enemies of Hashem, those who would entice others to abandon God and his ways. Uh, So let's continue on in our search. In 2 Kings 10, Jehu kills 42 relatives of the king of Judah, who had come to pay respects to Ahab. This occurred as Jehu was clearing up after his successful coup of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, 2 Kings 10, 12-14 and he rose up to go and went to Samaria. On the way, at Bethlehem of the shepherds, Yahu met the brothers of Ahaz Yahu, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? 
And they answered, We are brothers of Ahaziahu, and we have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. And he said to them, Take them alive. So they took them alive and slew them at the well of Bethaked, forty-two men, and he left none of them. And that's it for the Old Testament. The only mentions of the word of the number forty-two. Now in the New Testament we find the number forty-two used only twice, and both mentions are in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 11, we read that for 42 months, the nations are given leave to trample the holy city while the two witnesses are prophesying. Revelation 11, 1 through 2. And a reed like a measuring rod was given to me, and the messenger stood, saying, Rise and measure the dwelling place of God, and the altar, and those worshiping in it. But cast out the court which is outside the dwelling place, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they shall trample the holy city underfoot. For 42 months. And in Revelation 13, just two chapters later, the beast is given authority for 42 months over the earth. Revelation 13, 4 through 5. And they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, who was able to fight with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great matters and blasphemies, and he was given authority to do so for 42 months. And that is it for the explicit mentions of the number 42. So did you see a connecting theme? In all but the number of Levitical cities, this number is connected to a person who opposed Hashem. Whether at the time frame of the rule of the dragon and the nations over Jerusalem, or the number of people who opposed Elisha or supported Ahab and died. In all but this one connecting factor, the Levitical cities. But when we add in the Levitical cities and the cities of refuge, we discovered that there's a commentary going on under the surface on authority in cases of death. Legitimate authority in the Old Testament against the enemies of God, and legitimate authority in the New Testament against the people of God. But that's not the only time that we find the number 42 represented in Scripture. We find 42 appear in some other very interesting ways. So let's take some cues from these examples that we've already seen and find other ways in which this number is represented. First, let's look for lists that contain 42 entries, similar to this list that we're looking at here. And, surprisingly enough, we find two others. And both of them are in the genealogy of the Messiah, as recounted by both Matthew and Luke. Now, the genealogy of Matthew 1 is a genealogy that is rather iconic because this genealogy seems to go out of its way to use numerology to make its point. And in Matthew 1.17, we read this. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Fourteen generations between three major movements of the history of Israel, at least as recorded by Matthew. From Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to the Messiah. And if we multiply 14 times 3, what do we end up with? 42 generations from Abraham to Messiah. 42 stops from the giving of the covenant to the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant. Now, in Luke, we read another genealogy that does not seem to be based in numerology, but rather seems to be more of an accurate accounting according to Greek thought of the genealogy of Messiah. 
And yet, even in this genealogy, there is a series of 42 generations found from David to Messiah. Again, 42 stops from a covenant to the fullness of that covenant. And these seem to be the only other times that we find lists that contain 42 entries in all of Scripture. And so in this, we find that when expressed in this way, there's something entirely different going on than if the number 42 is explicitly called out. So while specific mentions of the number 42 seem to be primarily connected to those who have authority over death, this lists that contain 42 speak of a process of fulfillment of covenant, from the beginning and cutting of the covenant to the fulfillment of that covenant. 42 stops before you get there. Now, finally, we find 42 in a few other ways. We can take our cues from this, from what we saw earlier of the mentions in Revelations. 42 months is how long? Well, you can go either up or down in your calculations. We can go down to days, or we can count up to years. And in this, we find other numbers that are connected to 42. If we go down to the smaller scale, then 42 months using the round number of 30 days a month is 1,260 days, a number that we find used in several places in Scripture. Again, in Revelation 11, the two witnesses are given authority and they will witness for 1,260 days. Or, as it said in the verse before it, 42 months. Revelation 11, 2 through 3. But cast out of the court, which is outside of the dwelling place, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they shall trample the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I shall give unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clad in sackcloth. In these verses, forty-two months and one thousand two hundred sixty days are back to back, and the way that they are used highlights the subject of each verse, as we're going to see. And then in Revelation 12, the very next chapter, the woman will escape into the wilderness where she will be nourished for 1,260 days, Revelation 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there 1,260 days. 1,260 days in the wilderness, 42 months in the wilderness. This is not coincidence. When broken down into days, this number speaks of those who serve Hashem in a period of time in which they are cared for and protected from the enemy. Again, this is something that we can that we can consider as we look at this chapter, because we saw this very thing occurring throughout the book of Numbers, but highlighted specifically in the story of Balaam. And then finally, if we go to the large scale of 42 months and convert this number to years, then we end up with three and a half years. And three and a half years is a time frame that we again read of several times in Scripture. In the Old Testament, we find three mentions of three and a half years, and all are in Daniel. Daniel 7 speaks of the one who will oppose God and will wear down the people of God for three and a half years. But Daniel uses the phrase time, times, and half a time to express this idea of three and a half years. Daniel seven twenty four through 25 
And the ten horns are ten kings from this kingdom. They shall rise, and another shall rise after them. And it is different from the first ones. And it humbles three kings. And it speaks words against the Most High. And it wears out the holy ones of the Most High. And it intends to change the appointed times and the law. And they are given into its hand for time, times, and half a time. Then in Daniel 12, it says that the events of this chapter will last for three and a half years until the people of God are shattered. Daniel 12, 5-7 Then I, Daniel, looked and saw two others standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he held up his right hand and his left hand to the heavens, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for an appointed time, appointed times, and half a time. And when they have ended scattering the power of the holy people, then all of these shall be completed. And then in Revelation chapter 12, once again, it speaks of the woman escaping to the wilderness and being nourished there for the same three and a half years. Revelation twelve thirteen through 14 And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle to fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. A near exact repeat of verse 6 earlier in the chapter, where 1,260 days was the method of counting. When the same time frame is expressed in this way, it speaks of a time frame of persecution from the enemies of God and an escape that, guess what, includes a wilderness and nourishment. Not variety or plenty, but nourishment. Now, something that's pretty interesting is that the last two mentions of this time frame are both found in the New Testament and both make the mention of a single story from the Old Testament. But in the story in the Old Testament, three and a half years is not mentioned explicitly. Both Luke 4.25 and James 5.17 say that the drought that Elijah called down on Israel in the book of 1 Kings lasted three and a half years. Luke 4.24-26, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But truly I say to you, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine in all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but to Zephyrat of Sidon, to a woman, a widow. And James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with feelings like us, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the land brought forth its fruit. But we do not read of the time frame of the drought in Israel, except in 1 Kings 18.1. Hashem comes to Elijah in the third year and commands him to appear before King Ahab. So 1 Kings 17.1, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As Hashem, God of Israel, lives Before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or rain these years except at my word. And then the very next chapter, 1 Kings 18, 1 through 2. And after many days it came to be that the word of Hashem came to Eliyahu in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I give rain on the earth. Thereupon Eliyahu went to present himself to Ahab, and the scarcity of food in Samaria was severe. No mention of three years and six months, but here it is again. King Ahab, and a connection 
to 42. And where was Elijah during this time? Eh, Not in the wilderness. He was being nourished by ravens until he was told to go to a widow's house because she had been prepared to sustain him. 1 Kings 17, 2-3 Go away from here and turn eastward and hide by the Wadi Karet, which flows into the Jordan, and it shall be that you drink from the stream, and I shall command ravens to feed you there. And then later on in verse 9 it says, Rise up to Zephyrat, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to sustain you. Throughout scripture we find this number, 42, referenced in so many interesting ways. And rarely is it obvious when we encounter this number or a number connected to it. And what does it mean? Well, that depends on how you discover the number. Is it a list of 42 items? Then this is describing a series of stages that pass by between the beginning of a promise and the fulfillment of that promise. Is the number 42 stated specifically? Whether in the listing of the Levitical cities, the bears that maul the young men, or the killing of the 42 sycophants of Ahab, or the 42 months of authority given to the nations and the dragon, this number speaks of one who has authority over death. 42 months listed in days, 1,260 days, speaks of protection for the people of God in the midst of tribulation. But 42 months describes as time, time, and half a time speaks of the same time of tribulation and the power that will be given to the dragon over the people of God to bring them to their very end. And 42 months described in the manner of three years and six months? Well, that is only found in the story of Elijah and the curse of drought that was placed over Israel. And in the story, we find that all of the 42s come together. Ahab as representative of the dragon, given authority over the holy land and the people. Jezebel as representative of the harlot. Elijah as representative of the two witnesses who were given power to shut up the rain in the heavens and who were protected for 1,260 days. The woman of Revelation represented the prophets and the priests who were hidden away from Ahab and Jezebel and sustained during this time. The remnant that had never bowed a knee to Baal. And for the time of 42 months, these monarchs of the earth were given power over the people of God to destroy them. They killed the prophets wantonly. They cheated and lied and abused their power to get their own way. They killed the innocent through false accusations and stole their land. And when the time was completed, they were destroyed, as were all who followed them and who followed the gods that they worshipped. Do you see how this works? Numbers mean things in the Bible, and the way that they're spoken of and recounted, they add a bit of flavor to enhance what's being said. What's being said? Why 1,260 days and not 42 months? Why time times and half a time and not three and a half years? The way that the number is expressed speaks to what is being highlighted in the text. And as we saw in Revelation 11, These numbers can occur in back-to-back verses and even in the same chapter and context and yet appear in different ways. And the way that they are related highlights what's happening in greater detail. So with that detour, let's return to the text for this week. As we have discovered, 42 items in a list describes a process that's being accomplished. From beginning to end, the data points listed describe the steps that were taken along the way. 
And in the midst of this list, we find that there are several specific events that are recounted in the midst. Places where the humdrum and they went there next pattern is interrupted with a reminder of a story that occurred along the way. And if we examine this chapter, we find that there are four items that are recounted during this record of the journey. And these four items highlight the growth that occurred in Israel along the way. And it begins with the reminder of where Israel started. They started in Egypt, and the text highlights the judgment that Hashem has wrought on Egypt in their escape. And so begins the journey. The first quip that's added to this list is a reminder of what happened in Elim in verse 9. There were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees in Elim. Second quip is found in verse 14. It recounts that there was no water at Rephidim. The next break in the pattern comes in verse 38 as the people are reminded that Aaron died on Mount Hor. And then immediately the topic shifts in verse 40 to the king of Arad that lived in Canaan. And that's it before the end of the list. So why these stories specifically? These stories seem to be some of the less memorable stories of their journey. And yet these are the ones that break things up here. In the in the beginning, Israel had just seen God work destructive miracles to free them from bondage, works of judgment and fear and destruction. And in the ancient Near East mindset, gods were in charge of only one thing. Vindictive and violent gods were not known for being kind and caring, while kind and caring gods were not likely to act violently. Israel had seen God work in Egypt in, in a destructive manner, but now they were faced with the real possibility that they had left Hashem behind, because gods were territorial as well, and that he was not capable of creating, but only of destroying. And so to begin with, God leads the people to the place of rest and relaxation, a place with numbers that mean things. But then I covered that when we were there back in Exodus. And the compassion of God was revealed to the people, his ability to act in multiple ways. And then in the second break, we read that Israel was without water. Despite this example, they continue to doubt. Exodus 17, verse 7, And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the strife of the children of Israel and because they tried Hashem, saying, Is Hashem in our midst or not? In these two stories, we see that Hashem revealed himself as larger than a single territory and capable of caring for as well as defending his people. The presumptions that came from Egypt were being changed. The next break we get of the death of Aaron at Mount Hor, just before Aaron died, we saw the last and third water trial, and we get a glimpse of their mental state in Numbers 20, verse 4, it says, Why have you brought up the assembly of Hashem into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? At this point, the people have come to terms with the fact that Hashem loved them and cared for them. They were dealing with a different issue here. They had the choice of dealing with God directly or treating Aaron and Moses as demigods who are able to coerce God and who act in a place of power and authority. And Moses and Aaron uphold the view of their own authority and power when Moses declares, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Up to this point, the people blamed Aaron and Moses for all of their hardships. They assumed that they were in control of the situation. 
They also incorrectly assumed that Moses and Aaron were able to manipulate God into doing what they wanted. I mean, that was the way of Egypt, after all. When there was a problem, the people complained to Moses and Aaron, not to God. When Moses delayed coming down, they built the golden calf, not to replace God, but to replace Moses. When the water ceased, when the bread was not enough, when the task seemed impossible, they blamed Moses. And so God calls Aaron to die in front of the people, and they all see him ascend the mountain and then never come back. Numbers 20, verse 29. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. The people see that Aaron is dead. God meant for them to notice his mortality. God uses the death of Aaron to show that Aaron and Moses were merely men and not demigods. They were always acting on what God told them and not on their own authority. When they get to the land, they're going to be on their own, and so they need to learn to trust God and not to trust Moses and Aaron. Immediately after the death of Aaron in the final episode recorded here, the king of Arad notices Israel and attacks and takes away captives. Unlike every episode in the past, the people do not turn to Moses to fix things in this story. The people turn directly to Hashem and take a vow. Numbers 21 verse 2. Then Israel made a vow to Hashem and said, If you deliver this people into my hands indeed, then I shall put their cities under the ban. Aaron's mortality teaches the people that their leaders were just messengers and that everything has come before was always from God. And this is the beginning of the victories of Israel as they move through the backside of the wilderness. Numbers 33.1 literally speaks of the physical journeys of Israel through the desert, but on a deeper level, this chapter speaks of the psychological and the spiritual journey that the people went through during their travels. And from this we discover the importance of our testimony. You see, Israel was about to face overwhelming odds. They were about to be put in danger with enemies all around. And so this reminder to the people of where they had been and where they were going was necessary. And we discover that it is this that is our own strength when the time of 42 comes upon us. Revelation 12 verse 11. It's the very center of the book of Revelation. It's bordered on each side by the prophecy of the woman going into the wilderness and being nourished there, safe from the enemy that brought her death. And it contains the keys that we need to overcome. Revelation twelve eleven, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their witness, and they did not love their lives to the death. The blood of the Lamb is the redemption. It is what makes a person part of Israel. The word of their testimony is the personal and communal stories of disaster and failure and the faithfulness of God in the midst of those. And they did not love their lives to death. They recognize that redemption means that you have to pass through death, that every moment belongs to Hashem. Seeking to save your life at this time will lead to defeat and failure. 
Recognition that this manifestation of our life is not worth saving because there is a greater manifestation that is already ours. These are the keys to overcoming when the time of 42 comes upon you. And learning these keys are essential to the people of God. The 42 stops will give you that testimony so that when the 1,260 days come, you have the tools that you need. May these items, the blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony, and a recognition that this life is not the end, may they become part of who you are. Because without these things, we don't stand a chance as we walk this path of life. So Deresh Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.